you're doing well. It's Steph. It is uh, the 10th of November 2006, out for my noon walk, and I wanted to do a slight warm-up to a debate that I would like to have this uh, Sunday. We have a fine gentleman who joins us from time to time from Montreal who is not so much interested in the psychology or the, um, uh, the uh, philosophy, but is very interested in the theology. And it's a question that I've seen debated a number of times before, so I'd like to have that debate on Sunday. So I thought that I would spend a little bit of time laying out some of my thoughts on the topic because I do think that it's essential that we keep darting randomly between the three pillars of (laughs) persecution and false moral ideologies, the state, the family, and the church. So I wanted to talk about this question as I dodge... Uh, the wind tunnel that is <laughs> the area around the um, the place that I work, but I wanted to talk about this question, which is uh, often sort of posed or often comes into uh, play, which is uh, agnosticism versus atheism. And yeah, yeah, we can go all over the whittling down of these definitions, but um, I would sort of define them as agnosticism being the proposition that having any opinion for or against the existence of of a god is the only logical approach that a a scientist or a rational person can take to this question of god's existence and uh, atheism is the positive proposition that there is no such thing as a god and this is a very powerful and dense and complicated uh, subject so I'll oversimplify it in a rush and throw in some jokes as I generally do so that uh, it's all become perfectly uh, unclear so <laughs> so the, uh, the the question sort of is around the uh, the, uh, the the positive proposition that there's no such thing as a god and the logical uh, ways in which that is is established and so I'm going to take sort of the following approach and you can let me know what you think, because I am an atheist and not an agnostic, and I view agnosticism as a reprehensible form of intellectual cowardice. So I had to put my, I had to put my biases and prejudices right out there so that you can uh, see uh, whether or not I'm allowing irrational emotions to influence my rational judgment, but I view agnostics as perhaps uh, the most irritating intellectual group uh, in, in, in history in the world. Uh, I view them as more annoying than fundamentalists, but uh, so so you know this could be because I've <laughs> I've worked through all of the issues and have them all nailed, or uh, I have a, a prejudicial slant on the question because uh, my emotions run high in this area. So I'm not doing this in the car, so I don't end up raising my voice, <laughs> except in song. So the the idea that I'd sort of like to work with is that. Uh, really asking questions about the existence of God is, uh, I, I would suggest, sort of a futile way to approach the question of the existence of a deity. And what I'd sort of suggest instead as an approach is that you need to have methodologies for accepting or not accepting the existence of an entity or the truth value of a proposition that have nothing to do with God, right? This is the fundamental problem with the criteria of of atheism and why atheists get a little twitchy and understandably so when people say to them, well, 
so you're just against God, right? You're an atheist, so you're against God, or you, whatever. And then, of course, atheist means opposed to uh, religion or religiosity. And that, of course, is a fairly nonsensical formulation or proposition, and it's kind of an aesthetic cheat, an aesthetic cheat that you will often see in arguments, right? So, uh, you know, an example that somebody on the board yesterday said that my position was extreme passivity, right? Uh, there's a question about whether or not it's a good idea to uh, yell at cops, right? Whether whether that's a sensible thing to do. Oh, must cross the street because somebody is working away here and I don't want to end up having to walk past the leaf blower and have you miss even a single syllable of the minor public rants involved in my daytime works. Right, so somebody will say something like extreme passivity. Uh, he's saying, I was sort of questioning the, the, the wisdom uh, and the maturity of, of sort of uh, yelling at cops and stuff like that. And this gentleman, who yeah, I have an enormous respect for, and I'm not saying he's wrong, but he characterized what he did as standing up for himself versus what I do, which is I'm very pleasant to cops and you know get them out of my way as quickly as possible. He sort of characterized my approach as extreme passivity and his as standing up for himself. And of course, there's quite a strong aesthetic cheat in that uh, as well, right? I mean, it's not to say he's wrong. It's just that it's a bit of a um, uh, non-rigorous uh, way to, to argue, which, of course, I never do. Right? <laughs> well, that's your, your, yours to judge, of course. But what, you, uh, what you're going to find with the term atheist is that because it connotates or connotes uh, being against God, there is a, um, a sort of argument from psychology, which is very common in these kinds of situations. There's an argument from psychology that is involved in that, which is always a little bit tricky to uh, to uh, to oppose. Right? Whenever you say that you're against God, then there's a kind of personal motivation, a sort of defensive reaction formation type motivation that is kind of embedded in that concept, right? Like if I said I really hate God, then one would not particularly say that that would be a very rational argument uh, to make, right? So uh, when you say atheist and this idea that you're against God and so on, it's sort of, it's, it's picking out one irrationality among a near infinity of rationalities and saying that this is the one that I oppose, just this one about God, not the one about unicorns or leprechauns or pegasus or griffins or orcs or Nazgul or anything like that, that this is the one that I'm against. And as you're probably aware, if you sort of type randomly into a computer, you know, you're very unlikely to come up with any coherent sentences. And... So if you say, if you sort of, you know, there's 10,000 incoherent sentences and then just by sort of accident with the sort of monkey typing situation, you end up with uh, a sentence that is coherent, right? Then you would have some, some sort of grammatical or rule structure which would say, well, this sentence is correct and all these other ones are not correct because they're real random and include special characters and they're in wingdings or whatever. Now... If you were then to sort of pick out one of those 10,000 
nonsensical sentences that come out of the random typing scenario, and you were then to say, I am against sentence number 5002, right? I uh, am going to define my study of grammar and logical syntax and so on, and I'm going to define that as I am against random sentence number 5002. Did you see that there's sort of a an aesthetic cheat involved in that that isn't particularly helpful in understanding the whole uh, the process? If you're going to single out a single or a particular irrationality and say that you are defined by your opposition to that particular or singular irrationality, then you are going to have lots of logical problems in defending why you would just be against that particular irrationality. Hi! Some kids in a cut. So, the problem with the term atheist is that the number of propositions that are false in this world is almost infinitely greater than the number of propositions that are true. Just as most scientific methods and most ideas fail, right? Most novels don't sell very much. Most movies don't make a lot of money. Most propositions are false. 90% of everything is crap, as I think Theodore Sturgeon said. So, the number of things that are incorrect in the world is vastly greater than the number of things that are correct. Except here, because of your kind participation, oh, my wondrous listeners. And so singling out one thing that is incorrect and saying that I define myself by being against random sentence number 2000, uh, 5002 is not a particularly helpful categorization. So the problem with atheist versus agnostic is is that um, there's a cheat involved by saying that you are against one particular irrational statement, i.e. there is a God, versus all the other irrational statements. So, or, or that, that the question of God should be given special consideration relative to things like unicorns and leprechauns and so on. So, that's sort of the first, the first thing that I would talk about. The, the next thing I think that's important to understand is that a general methodology of determining random sentences from coherent sentences would not really be to sort of look at each one and say, well, that doesn't really make much sense to me. Oh, that sentence doesn't really make much sense to me. Oh, here's a sentence that, you know, the words are composed of, you know, they're recognizable words, but they're kind of jumbled. I think I can puzzle out some sense from this. And, you know, you don't sort of step through each one of them. You come up with you know, rules of grammar and capitalization and so on, punctuation. And you then look for... Uh, you can then apply rules to find out whether sentences are coherent or not. You don't just sort of say, you know, this sentence makes me feel purple and assume that you've come up with something sort of rational. And the same thing is sort of true when it comes to establishing the viability of a proposition. The idea behind a God from an agnostic standpoint is to say that since there is no criteria by which God may be disproved, then we cannot say anything about the concept of God. I mean, that's the fundamental agnostic position, that 
whenever you somebody says there's a God and you say, well, why? You say because he shows up at this cafe on Tuesdays at noon and you go to the cafe on Tuesdays at noon and the, you say, well, there's no God here, so God doesn't exist. And the person says, no, it's every second Tuesday. And then you go every second Tuesday. There's still no God. It's like it's every second Tuesday on every 4th November on every full moon. Like if the person just keeps moving the bar with the proposition that God exists and then you disprove each particular instance of the proof by which they claim that God does exist, and they just keep moving the bar, then the agnostic says, well, since there's no criteria by which God can either be proven or disproven, then to say God does not exist is uh, a nonsensical uh, statement. It's a nonsensical statement. It's like saying, my fish has two aglets. Right, I mean, and, and getting very passionate about the statement, my fish has two aglets, and uh, then ending up, oh my heavens, look up here, there are a whole bunch of geese crossing the road and everybody's stopping to let them cross, how nice. If only that were the case with pedestrians, that would be a wonderful, wonderful thing. And here comes a truck to interrupt my podcast. I will wait for it to pass by. So uh, the agnostic then looks at the question of the existence of God and says, well, I can't come up with anything sensible about this concept at all. And so I'm simply going to refrain from discussing the question in any way, shape, or form. I'm not going to oppose those who say there is a God, and I'm not going to support those who say that there is no God and uh, vice versa. And that's a fascinating question, because we have created this world of special rules just for gods, or singular. It's almost always in a monotheistic sense, right? People don't say, the, I'm agnostic about the existence of Zeus, you know, or of, I don't know, some uh, Freya, or some other deity, Osiris, uh, uh, Satan, or, you know, the uh, angel, Archangel Gabriel. It's always around God singular, God monotheistic, and it's sort of hard to understand why there would be a separate category other than sort of rank, intellectual cowardice, and a desire to appear superior and rising above the fray of a very necessary intellectual battle about whether or not we apply rationality to propositions or not. But there is this tendency to, to create this case, this is a special world where the question of the existence of God uh, sits in its own little corner and is not subjected to the same sort of beliefs uh, that um, uh, that every other proposition in the world would be subject to in any rational philosophy. So it's a sort of case of special pleading or, you know, well, okay, leprechauns is one thing. I don't believe in leprechauns, although leprechauns are far more logical than a god. Um... But in the question of God, I'm simply going to not uh, answer it, right? And that's just because people... I mean, they wish to avoid controversy. Uh, I understand that. Uh, believe it or not, I, I really do. They wish to avoid controversy, and they also... But, but And that's not, to me, the irritating part. Like, if someone were to say, you know, I, I don't really talk about religion <laughs> with people. Uh, you know, it's too, it's too hot a topic, and... You never get anywhere, and so I just I just don't talk about religion with people, right? That's not irritating to me. I mean, that may be a little bit cowardly, but you know, you can at least respect the 
the honesty with which that is presented. No, 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 no. The problem with agnostics, in my humble opinion, is that they claim that they are both right and tolerant and virtuous and better for not getting involved in topics with religion. Right, so they turn their cowardice into a virtue. That, to me, is the annoying aspect about agnostics. That's the part that drives me a little batty. Because they say that it is illogical to assert that there is no God because there's no way of proving or disproving it, so you can't say anything about it, and therefore a vaguely wise and benevolent withdrawal from the question is the only logical and sensible alternative. But if it is the case that one can logically withdraw from any question where a proposition is put forward without the possibility of a negative proof or a disproof, if that is a valid approach, right, just using basic, the basic scientific method and the basic argument from logic and morality, if it is a, a, good, a, a valid thing to do, to simply withdraw in uh, haughty and superior silence and uh, wise uh, withdrawal from the question in the manner of a mother who is tired of her children bickering, uh, who simply asks them to go to their separate corners without troubling herself as to the virtue of their dispute, or the nature of their dispute, if it is wise to do that with regards to God, it's very hard to understand why it would not also be wise to do that with every other proposition. You can't create a special category called God wherein you simply put in widely divergent moral views uh, that you would never hold in any other situation. I mean, you can do that but just recognize you're setting up a little camp of cowardice in your mental life. You are not doing anything noble. You're simply justifying yourself in a greasy, moral manner. You're justifying vices of cowardice and superiority uh, and uh, a uh, lack of willingness to confront the dangerous irrationalities in this world and calling it a virtue, of course. So if I put forward a proposition that blacks are inferior or you know whites are inferior or whatever, and I say, I strongly believe this, uh, the whites are inferior, which I think cognitively with respect to Orientals, this may in fact be the case, who knows, but if I say whites are inferior, and somebody says, well, what's your proof? And I say, my proof is that whites are taller. And they go out and do the measurements, they say, whites aren't taller. And then I say, well, they're bolder. Uh, whites aren't bolder. And I keep sort of coming up with these criteria. Do people then say, well, the proposition that whites are inferior, uh, I'm not going to argue against it because there's no, uh, there's no uh, criteria uh, by which it can be judged because the criteria keep changing or being removed. And therefore, I'm going to let this belief uh, remain unmolested. And I'm sorry to bring the phrase molestation into a religious context, uh, forgive me, I don't really think that that would be the case. I don't think that that's the approach that people would take with regards to the proposition that whites are inferior. They would say, the proposition is proven false, and in fact, the reason, other than the fact that you keep changing the measuring stick uh, and keep moving the goalposts, so to speak, 
doesn't mean that I now can't figure out whether or not your proposition is true or false. Because you simply can't have a proposition which is supposed to denote something about reality, especially ultimate metaphysical reality as in the existence of a deity. You simply can't have a proposition that something exists which is not subject to critical examination. And if every criteria by which someone claims that something exists is then withdrawn, then that thing does not exist. Not for all intents and purposes. Not until something better comes along. Not until some proof comes along. That uh, the existence of that thing simply does not exist. If I say I'm walking an invisible dog, I got one of those joke leashes with the, you know, the sort of a stiff leash with a collar at the end, and I say that I'm walking an invisible dog, right? And somebody says, oh, invisible dog, huh? And I say, you bet. Invisible Poochie Von Poochieville. And you then reach down and say, cool, I've never seen an invisible dog. Uh, I'm going to pet it, right? And, and I said, well, no, it's not only invisible, but you can't feel it either. Like, wow, okay, can I smell it? No, can't smell it. Can I taste it? Nope, can't taste it. Not that you'd want to taste dog, especially when it's wet. And then you say, okay, well, can I get an infrared scanner? Nope, doesn't show up there either. Right? The question of the existence of the dog is not in question. <laughs> right? I mean, what conceivable criteria could you have for the existence of something except for its impact on some physical device, whether it's your eyes or a spectrograph or a uh, infrared or x-ray uh, um, uh, receiver. Uh, this, what, what other criteria could you have for the objective existence for something other than that it objectively exists in some measurable manner? Because how on earth would you then be able to tell a psychotic from a sane human being? And of course, just because it's common doesn't mean that Christianity and other religious is not a form of social psychosis. But how then would you differentiate between an imagined entity and a real entity? There would be no criteria. You just believe anyone who said anything, right? I just, you know, love to go up to an agnostic and say, I'm going to sell you an iPod. I mean, this is just the, the, the fundamental crap and cowardice at the root of this philosophy is not that hard to see. You go up to an agnostic and you say, dude, I'm going to sell you an iPod. For only a hundred bucks, sixty gig iPod, color screen, hundred bucks only. They give you a hundred bucks, right? And it's on eBay, and you ship them an empty box, right? Special for agnostics only. iPods for a hundred bucks. Thank you for your hundred bucks. I ship you a box that's empty, right? But they open the box and they go, "Holy shit, an invisible iPod!" And then they reach in and they go, "Wow, it's invisible and incorporeal." Wow, fantastic. And it has imaginary earbuds and imaginary music. And then they phone me and they say, you know what, I'm actually not sure, you know, on second thought, I don't think you actually shipped me an iPod. And I say, well, sure I did. Like, well, I can't see it. Well, it's invisible. I can't touch it, but it's incorporeal. But it's there. I would just love to know how many agnostics would say, okay, I'm satisfied. I'm not going to uh, ask for my money back because I can't establish whether or not this iPod exists or not. There's no possibility of saying anything logical or coherent about whether or not this iPod exists or not. I mean, all I'm asking for is a little frickin' common sense here, people. We're not asking for people to 
uh, solve quadratic equations while uh, running up a hill and juggling. We're just asking for a little common sense. I ship you an empty box. You don't say, huh, well, there's nothing I can say about whether or not this iPod exists or not. It's indeterminate. And anybody who says that the iPod does not exist is basically as crazy and irrational as anybody who says the iPod does exist. Right? You'll have to go to a, uh, uh, a married uh, uh, agnostic, you know, and then his wife leaves him, and uh, he says, well, no, she, I can't tell whether she's here or not. Right? She's packed up and she's moved out, so you could make an argument that she's no longer here, right? But she's here in spirit. She's here invisibly and incorporeally. She may be in, in Puerto Rico with a strapping Spanish sailor named Raul, but she's also here as well. Not the inflatable kind, but the incorporeal, invisible, non-tangible, spiritual kind of wife. So she's still here. Now, if somebody launched into that conversation at a dinner party, wouldn't you sort of say, maybe I'll skip the dessert, or maybe I'll give this guy dessert with a little bit of Prozac mingled in and some antipsychotics? You wouldn't say, huh, well... So your wife is in Puerto Rico with Raul, currently applying uh, jello and maple syrup to his six-pack abs, and she's also at your house, uh, invisibly in no way that could ever be detected. And I guess I don't know whether she's there or not. I guess there's no, there's no real way to answer that question. I mean, I don't think that you would say that. And this is sort of what I mean when I say that there's a special case, a special corner of crazy that's set up for the question of the existence of God. People don't believe in invisible dogs and invisible iPods and invisible wives. But you bring up God and suddenly everyone's like, oh, wait, hey, whoa, we can't talk about that. That's indeterminate. Bullshit. If you believe that agnosticism is valid, I really do have some invisible iPods to sell you. And if you won't buy my invisible iPods, then get off the goddamn fence about God, all right? Stop screwing around with this essential question. And stop copping out and calling it courage. Because we're just asking for a little consistency. I mean, that's all. It's not asking for the world. Just asking for you to apply the same criteria to this question of God as you do to uh, every other thing in your life. Do you work for an invisible paycheck and then say, well, I don't know whether I'm getting paid or not? Right? Do you get your leg? If your leg gets amputated, do you then walk around and say, well, I don't know if I need a crutch because I don't know if my leg's there or not? No, of course not. I mean, it's hilarious. The amounts of contortions that people will go through just to call cowardice courage and weaseliness wisdom. Astounding. I mean, just be honest and say, I don't like conflict. I don't like it when people who are religious get mad at me. I don't want to confront people with the truth. I just prefer to retreat to this high bullshit supposed chair of wisdom and say that I'm above all this petty wrangling. But that's all that's being asked for is a little integrity and a little honesty. Nothing major, nothing magical, nothing <laughs> that is beyond the realm of, of comprehensibility. 
And you will see a lot of scientists who hang on to this kind of stuff, right? You will see a lot of scientists, and I've certainly met a lot of scientists who have this vague meism going on, this vague spirituality, this... And, you know, they're real betrayers of the cause, frankly. Uh, the cause of truth and rationality. Because they're scientists, right? So, so when they say, I can't tell whether there's a God or not, well, they're putting on their white coats, right? And they're saying to a bunch of people, yeah, I got the scientific method, but and I apply it to everything but not God. See, if somebody says, I mean, this is the last thing that I'll sort of say about this, and we can talk about this more on the weekend, but if somebody says that a God exists, and we assume, if we, if we say, well, it's just an imagination, or it's just their imagination, they're just making stuff up, then, of course, we don't believe that that God exists, right? Any more than a man who says, I'm Napoleon, that we sort of go, huh, well, maybe, maybe not. Well, no, <laughs> Napoleon's dead and gone. Expired in Elba, I think it was. But we don't sort of put that open to uh, doubt and questioning. So if somebody says, well, there's a god, and we just assume that they're making it up, that there's a deranged or, or lying, then we don't, uh, you know, we don't say, well, the question can't be answered. But if somebody says, there is a god, and there is some reason for us to believe that there's some truth in what they're saying, then they must have had some intervention. Right, God must have done something to them in order for them to believe that there is a God. Right, because if God didn't interfere at all in human nature or human affairs or the human heart, if God didn't speak to or communicate with or have any effect on the human soul whatsoever, right, then anybody who said there is a God would obviously be making something up. So the only reason that somebody could even remotely credibly say uh, as a testable proposition that there is a God would be somebody to whom God has had some sort of effect on, has intervened in some manner, gave them a dream, gave them a vision, spoke in their ear, you know, gave them an erection at 80, who knows, whatever divine hand is at work, divine hand job, anyway. It must be the case that somebody who claims that there is a God and claims that there's an objective uh, reality to that proposition that there is a God, that that person must have experienced something outside of just his own imagination, because otherwise he'd say, I imagine that there's a God. Which is quite a very, a very different thing to do than to say there is a God. So, the moment that God has intervened in the a human being's life and experience, then uh, it goes from subjective to objective. Am I right? And the moment it goes from subjective to objective, then criteria of proof come into play. Because you're not saying, I have a belief that there is a God, which is untestable, of course, but they're saying there is a God, and that's why I believe in it. Right? So suddenly we go from subjective to empirical, which is a very different place to be. Right? That person has put forward a proposition of existence outside the mind, which means that God must have intervened in their mind to make them believe that it was something external to their own mind. Right? That's how we know the difference between dreams and waking. So, the moment that somebody is uh, saying that there is a God, then they're saying that God is measurable. 
God has impacted my consciousness from outside my consciousness, and that's how I know of his her objective existence. Which means God does intervene and does, you know, tickle our medulla with his divine finger and awaken us to his glorious existence. Right? And so if that is the case, then the effects of God uh, are immeasurable, must be measurable, logically must be measurable. So again, this is just using the basic scientific method to uh, take this approach to the existence of this of this being, which is really I don't think is the is the uh, absolute synchrona the world to answer uh, to ask for sort of evidence in this in this kind of area. All right, okay, one one last one last little thought. There's another thing which I think is important to understand about the existence of a deity, and we talked about this very briefly before, but not in this context, which is that. The proposition that a deity exists is the proposition that there is consciousness without matter, consciousness without form, life without corporeality, a brain or a mind without a brain. Which is the exact equivalent of saying that there is gravity without mass, that there is light without photons or wavelengths, that there is electricity without energy. Well, these things are one and the same, two sides of the same coin. Gravity is mass. Mass is gravity. Right? Electricity is a form of energy. It can't exist without energy. It's a form of energy. Life is corporeal. There is no mind without a brain. Mind is an effect of matter. And so, when you propose something as absurd and contradictory as life without material form, then you get one step even further from the absurdity of asking people to believe in something with no, corpora- with no logic or empirical evidence, which is that you're asking someone to believe in something that A, has no evidence, and B, is completely self-contradictory. So if I were a biologist and I were to propose the existence of a fish with wings and feathers that flew in the air and lived in trees, then I think a lot of my other fellow biologists would, I think, be of the opinion that if it's got wings and feathers and it lives in a tree and it flies through the air, then it's not a fish. Right? The fish is no wings, well, I guess flying fish, and no feathers, lives in the water. That would be you know, gills and so on. Doesn't need to come up for air, in the, mamma- in the mammalian sense. But what I would be doing is proposing a directly contradictory definition. And there's just no possible way that that could stand. It would be like saying that energy exists in the absence of energy, that gravity exists in the absence of gravity, which is the same as saying gravity exists in the absence of mass that matter exists in the absence of matter, that atoms occupy totally empty space and are themselves empty, well, then they're not an atom, right? I mean, this is just the basic logical definitions of reality. So if I propose a feathered flying fish that never lives in water, biologists are going to say, I'm sorry, that's not the definition of a fish. You're proposing a completely contradictory definition. If I go to a physicist and say, 
something exists that is neither matter nor energy, and yet it has existence, then the physicist is going to say, I'm sorry, but the very definition of existence is some combination of matter and energy. And so when you say that life exists without corporeality, without a body, that mind exists without a brain, then you're proposing a... I mean, this is just one of the many contradictions. But you're proposing a completely contradictory uh, definition of existence, of the reality of something. And I don't think that if you go to a physicist and say something exists in the absence of matter or energy, or any recordable metric whatsoever, I don't think that the physicist says, well, I can't answer whether that exists or not. The physicist is going to say, no, it doesn't exist, I'm sorry. I mean, any physicist with any integrity is going to say that. Certainly, uh, there's not, not much doubt about the invisible iPod, right? And, you know, if, this is all I'm really talking about in general when it comes to philosophy, that the abstract principles by which we organize the world and our minds and that exist in reality or exist describing the behavior of material reality, uh, they're not that much different. It's one of the reasons why people hate commerce. Is it, it's a whole lot of common sense stuff, right? So, you know, if you're agnostic about the invisible iPod, then obviously you're not telling the truth, because nobody's agnostic about the invisible iPod. And yes, I am getting subsidies from Apple. But all we're saying in the realm of, all I'm saying in the realm of philosophy is that philosophy is really just an extrapolation of everyday principles. Right? We know that a child's friend is imaginary if uh, there's no evidence that a child's friend exists, right? If someone comes into a psychiatrist's office and says, I'm here with my posse of invisible friends that you know don't have any uh, measurability, they're invisible, incorporeal, and so on, but they're here, the psychiatrist doesn't say, well, I can't answer that. I don't know. I don't know if this person's mentally ill or not. I don't know if they're healthy. I have no idea. Because there's no criteria for disproof. They say, look, uh, in one form or another, I need to get you a medication because you imagine things are there that are not there. Right, so this is how we live our life. This is the decisions that we make in general. You go, you go on a, you're on some sort of dating site and you say, oh, let's meet at uh, this place at 8 o'clock and she doesn't show up. You don't say, well, she was there, but she was invisible. You say, hey, she didn't show up. She wasn't there. Wasn't there. Didn't see her. She didn't call. Didn't hear her. And she's not even the invisible woman and didn't whisper in my ear. So... This is how we live our life, and why should the principles be any different for the existence of God? Why should we focus on being anti-sentence 5002 and not just say that according to the rules of grammar, this stuff's all nonsense? Well, vanity, fear, and cowardice, I would say, but I could be wrong. Certainly let me know what you think. I look forward to your donations. Thank you so much for listening.